This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to this week's Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth and joined this week by Danny Hewson to canter through the market movements over the past week, which is of course a bit shorter than normal thanks to the Jubilee Bank holiday. Hi, Dan. Despite the shortened week, there has been plenty of going on from political intrigue at Westminster to disappointment and disarray at UK airports. So there's been a whole host of M&A activity I'll delve into later in the podcast. And Laura Suit has been finding out when you should get a will and how to go about it. You can hear her interview with Lauren Smith from Taylor Bracewell Solicitors. Plus, have you filled up your car lately? The RAC is warning the price of a litre of petrol could hit £2 a litre this summer. We'll also be looking into how Apple has set the cat among the pigeons with its plans to enter the buy now, pay later space. So let's just kick off with a little look at how markets reacted to the confidence vote on Monday night. And um, actually, I've probably summarised by saying the markets sort of shrugged their shoulders a bit. So sterling was stable. FTSE 100 was broadly unchanged after we had the result. And, uh, you know, if anything, there was increased speculation that um, Boris Johnson's weakened position might lead to sort of less strident policy in relation to the EU. And also that perhaps this expectation he might have to pull some more rabbits out of the hat, try and unveil some more stimulus measures, partially as a way to improve his popularity. But but really, the market is much more concerned about pressure on households. So we've seen yet again, rising prices, which was reflected in weak retail sales data for May. And there was figures from Barclaycard which showed spending on essentials like food, fuel and utilities bills were going up rapidly. And I'm sure most people won't be surprised to hear that. No, absolutely. Um, I suppose one thing that does trouble markets a bit, though, of course, is if we see a weakened prime minister sort of delving into the hat and, and pulling out some rabbits in terms of fiscal stimulus at a time when we've got incredibly high inflation, that potentially could impact on those high prices. Yeah, I mean, just I think people have been watching sort of uh, policies from, from government and central banks very closely for the last six months, and even more so now, just wondering um, which twists and turns you know, the direction is going to take. And I think that um, it's really hard to you know, properly predict what is going to happen over the coming months. But um, I think just at the moment, it's more of a case of businesses are still feeling the pressure from inflation. Profit margins are being squeezed. Consumers are still wondering how they're going to pay their bills. And um, you know, if it, you know, I just think it's going to be a tough few months ahead. And you know, actually, you know, coming off the back of the, the, sort of the Jubilee weekend, yeah, it's nice to see people out and about celebrating, um, and, and I, you know, provided this boon to retailers and hospitality businesses. But um, the big half-term getaway didn't quite deliver what the travel sector had hoped for. No, it certainly didn't. In fact, I would think there are an awful lot of people in the travel sector who are looking at what happened over the last week and thinking it really couldn't have been any worse. Hundreds of flights cancelled. We had messages on social media from people who were stranded in foreign countries, unable to get back from their holidays, having to pay extra for, for flights, for accommodation. You know, they needed to get back to work or get the kids back to school. 
And they were the people that managed to get away. Of course, hundreds more got to the airport, got turned away or got that dreaded email to say your flight is not going to happen. Lots of allegations that travel companies have overpromised on what they can deliver and warnings that the summer season, that all important summer 2022, which the travel sector has been looking forward to, now all those COVID restrictions have come to an end, well, that might also be affected. The United Union warns uh, that disruption could actually be around for the whole year. The boss of Heathrow said similar this morning. And there has been a knock-on to share prices as well. I know you've been looking at this, Dan. Most travel companies are down in double digits, though Jet 2 stands out. Since the start of the year, it seems to have skirted most of the disruption. It shares down just 2% since the start of the year. The biggest fall in value, though, Wizz Air down 40%. Now, we had uh, results this morning announced by the low-cost carrier. And these were really interesting, Dan, because despite a strong rebound, travel uh, losses have climbed even higher than last year. And that's because of surging costs. You know, we have fuel, we have staff and airport costs. So it reported a loss of 642 million euros in the year. That's an 11.5% rise on the equivalent period the previous year. Now, the boss of the business has also said, you know, we're going to do everything that we can to keep disruption to a minimum. But obviously, you know, what's going on, the shortages of staff in air traffic control, security and other parts of the the supply chain are impacting airlines, our employees and our customers directly. And another thing that he said, which, of course, when we're all thinking about costs, which if you've not booked your holiday already yet, He said that the price of a plane ticket is likely to go up by around 10% because, of course, you know, airlines, they've had that huge period of time of massive disruption when they've made huge losses, not been able to get out and fly. And now they're in a situation where they're having to potentially put prices up. Yeah, I mean, I, well, another thing I thought was quite interesting in the Wizz Air numbers is that the, sort of the chief exec was sort of almost calling on the industry to pull up its socks and invest more. And and I think I think it was Jet 2 I was reading the other day, sort of having a pop at TUI, sort of saying that, um, you know, all these problems we've seen in, in UK airports, all the chaos have been caused by, you know, pretty much TUI, you know, just having far too few staff. And, and, and you know, Jet 2 was sort of saying that, well, we've been investing for uh, from in, in more workers for quite some time. We're recognising that, you know, as the re- travel sector recovers, you're going to have to have enough capacity to be able to service it. And, of course, we've got this at the moment. So, obviously, Wizz Air is sort of saying, well, we can't give any um, new financial guidance for the rest of our financial year because we just don't know what's going on. You know, airports are, you know, absolute chaos at the moment. Um, we're not sure whether consumers are still going to be able to afford as many tickets as perhaps they want to buy. Um, and, you know, there's also air traffic control disruption. All of this is, you know, it's it's, it's tough going. And you know, I, I, I've just come off uh, a plane a few days ago and, you know, like many people, uh, experienced the, um, the the email that said, "I'm sorry, but your your, your flight is cancelled. We're sticking you on another one." But um, I just sort of pass on a little tip that I, I got sent to a different airport that I, that I really needed to go to, um, albeit in the right country. I, I use this website called Resolver, which 
you input the company you want to sort of make a complaint against um, and give a little bit of information and they sort of populate the rest of it with all sort of legal terminology and, and they send it off on your behalf. It's completely free to use. I got some money back from British Airways within six hours of filling out this form. Wow. Um, and so if any, you know, if anyone's sort of having to, and this is, you know, my, mine was, I guess it was a fairly simple thing. I just wanted to get the the cost of a taxi paid back from having to travel from a different um airport but it's just saying if people trying to sort of deal with um these airlines i certainly know from trying to call british airways they just never answer their phone it just cuts off all the time that um maybe you want to have a look at this website completely free to use um and then it's certainly extremely helpful certainly to me and, and hopefully to lots of other people yeah i mean there's been an argument around this week that you know maybe the demand has been far more than airlines were potentially anticipating and and travel companies but it was may half term it was always going to be busy when people could travel finally that pent up demand i think it was fairly obvious that they were going to have to provide the numbers of staff to be able to cover it and because we saw similar scenes at easter i know the argument is that it takes weeks to train staff up and i know that it's an incredibly tight labor market and clearly there are a lot of skills required in order to do some of these jobs but it does feel like this sector has very much been caught on the hop. And when you know you're toying with people's with people's dreams, because that's what holidays are all about, then it, it does leave a really nasty taste in people's mouths. Um, volatility definitely still very much in charge on markets at the moment. But some of the ups and downs have come about because of a spate of deals being done or not being done, depending on the situation. Yeah, so we've got a, you know, there's two bits of news that sort of stuck out on the UK stock market in recent days. One is that the um, the bin man, the recycling company Biffa, um, has received takeover interest from a private equity company. Now, Biffa used to be owned by um, many years ago by um, Seven Trent. It was then sort of demerged and floated on the stock market. It only took a couple of years before a private equity consortium bought the business. 2016 relisted it on the stock market and so now it looks like you're going back to private equity again and i guess it's just it's easy to understand what the attractions are it, you know it doesn't matter what's going on in the economy good or bad we still need our, our sort of our bins emptied and um you know interest in recycling is it continues to grow it's got uh, some of its contracts are sort of inflation linked pricing so it can deal with inflationary pressures and, and just generally you know it's it's um, you know, it's a great sort of play on ESG. You know, there's much more interest in the business than there has been for quite some time. So um, I think that, if anything, I think this is going to be, it's a shame to see it. If it does go, if it does look like, a, you know, if the, if the price is right, it will it will disappear from the market. But we've also had Ted Baker, which has um, attracted quite a few sort of interested parties after its share prices collapsed in recent years but its preferred suitor has now walked away now that's thought to be a business called authentic brands but um it, that's not actually been confirmed it's just been widely reported that's the, the company's interested and i think that if if you've got um the preferred bidder has walked away then you know what does that really say about anyone else who's thinking you know do we you know are we missing something here do we really want to be buying this business um and i think you know you, you've got a, a retailer who's made lots of mistakes um and i wouldn't be surprised if the the board of ted baker want a lot of money if um therefore i don't thought that's going to be a slam dunk when it comes in terms of um this taker actually going through 
No, I mean, it was interesting that um, the board of Ted Baker said that the reason that the preferred bidder had stepped down was nothing to do with due diligence, but then didn't sort of add anything onto that. And, you know, the board has spent an awful lot of time trying to turn the business around. It's cut a lot of costs. And, you know, it's been a really difficult time for them because it's, a you know, one of those businesses that really needs people to be going out to occasions because that's the kind of stuff that it sells. And of course, during the pandemic, we just weren't doing that. Um, similar vein, uh, a deal which uh, took place last week. We didn't get to it because obviously a short week. It is worth mentioning. Um, Fraser's Group bought up Misguided, of course, the online fashion brand based in Manchester. And um, some news has come out in the last couple of days that, of course, you were talking about private equity, Dan. Well, uh, a private equity company, Alteria Investors, had come in to try to rescue Misguided um, the back end of, of last year. And according to Sky News reports, now stands to lose quite a bit of cash uh, on the deal. Um, Obviously, as well as suppliers, customers are being affected. I've, I've gone on the uh, the website today and you, you can't get on. Um, it's, it's all closed down. But clearly, the administrator is still operating the business. But lots of customers on social media saying, you know, we ordered stuff. It's not turned up. We want refunds. So, you know, do take a look at uh, some of the, the money saving websites that are out there, which will talk you through, you know, getting your cash back. If you use credit card or debit card, um, you should be able to get some of that back. Um Also, uh, you know, this business did incredibly well during the pandemic because online was the only game in town. But when things started to open up again, you know, retail, it kind of went into a more hybrid model. People wanted to get back out there. And, you know, there are a lot of businesses that did really well during lockdowns, but as restrictions eased, some of those winners have become losers and vice versa, Dan. Yeah, I mean, you know, Dr. Martin's is one that where um, it was doing okay, and then it, it, it suffered because um, there were restrictions on one of its factories in the in the, the east. Uh, so you know, production was disrupted. Then it was having trouble getting enough uh, of its products out. So um, actually, it was whilst all that was going on, it was share price was falling and falling. And it's a similar situation with Moonpig. It did extremely well during the pandemic, but um, you, know, you have to sort of like, what 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 is going on? Why is it, why are these share price falling more recently? And uh, for those two stocks in particular, it was all about um, investors were worried that the, the the big investors from private equity who floated the companies on the stock market would look to start selling down because uh, there's this thing called a, a lockup period. So when a company joins a stock market, there tends to be an agreement that, um, say, it's, it's the, the private um, investors before it floated and also staff and directors for the company themselves, they're not allowed to sell initially. Uh, so this lockup period ends and then you expect lots of stock to be dumped on the market. So that's what happens with Dr. Martins and Moonpig. Um We've actually just seen Dr. Martin's um, issue of a, a much better than expected um, set of numbers. And, you know, that's managed to put the, the share price back on a sort of upward direction. But equally, if you look in the US, there's a company called BuzzFeed. Um, its shares fell 40% a couple of days ago on, you know, sort of chatter that actually, look, its lockup agreements have all expired. The company's actually been cutting its workforce. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if staff morale has been very poor there. 
people who held stock um, before it became uh, a listed business and now using the first chance they can to, to, to essentially cash out. Um, you know, now this lockouts period is sort of expired, but um, it's certainly, you know, it's, it's a little factor that I think a lot of investors don't um, sort of consider when they're trying to understand what's, go- you know, what's happening with the direction of share price and these sort of, they call it share overhang. They can be extremely powerful influence on on the direction of share price, typically down. But when, once these sort of, um, this selling sort of tends to work its way through the system, um, you, you get sort of new group of investors who start to look whether these companies are worth investing in or not. Just uh, another one worth throwing into the mix at this point. Um, we had an update from Kazoo, obviously the used car seller online, announcing it's cutting 750 jobs, needs to save around £200 million, it says. You know, I mean, the business, of course, when people couldn't sell their cars any other way than online during the pandemic, it absolutely boomed. But now the boss, Alex Chesterman, the guy behind Love Film, uh, remember that one? Well, um, he said that the number of cars they're expecting to sell is this year is going to be down on what they had anticipated, saying that, you know, it wasn't immune to the rapid shift in the global economy, economy and the possibility of recession. Um you know, that there is still a lot of concern out there about exactly how the economy is going to fare over the next year because, you know, the situation coming off the back of COVID and Chinese lockdowns and the situation in Ukraine. Um, before we move on from markets, though, I feel like this should become a bit of a regular feature, Dan. The Elon Musk update. Maybe we could oh, have some kind of alarm. It, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is alarm, isn't it? I, th- I wonder whether, you know... It, just as you think that everything is just going to be sorted out, you know, is another twist in the story, isn't there? Yeah. So um, we knew that Elon Musk could press pause on this, you know, bid to scoop up Twitter for forty-four billion, taking a look at whether or not the number of bots that Twitter reckons that it has on the platform is is actually accurate, or whether it's a, a whole load more, as Elon Musk suggests. Um, But now uh, his legal team have have sent a a letter saying that if his suspicions prove to be accurate, then, you know, he has the right to walk away from this deal. Um, Twitter says, you know, we we've got this is as good as we can get in terms of the accurate information. And actually, in terms of the legality of it, um, Mr. Musk would have to show that Twitter was seeking to willfully mislead him and, and everybody in terms of, of these numbers. And there are a lot of people speculating that actually it's a bit of buyer's remorse, but maybe there's a bit of a sting in the tail for Mr. Musk as well, because um, Reuters sources are saying that now discussions between Elon Musk and, and some of the people that were thinking about sinking money into this deal have stalled because of all the chaos that's going on. So potentially, if he does go ahead with it, if he does go ahead with it at the price, whether or not, you know, it's just a, a clever way of trying to bring the price down. But whatever happens, it may be that now he has to find the cash himself to uh, to pay for it. But, you know, I'm sure this time next week, we will have another update on exactly what is going on. But, you know, Twitter shareholders, they must be in a world of pain right now, because the numbers just keep going all over the place. 
Yeah, talking about big tech companies, we've got details of Apple's big move into the buy now, pay later space coming up. And also we'll look at why the price of petrol could hit £2 a litre this week. But first, Laura Suter has been asking questions about making a will, when you should do it, how you should go about it. Now, she's been talking to Lauren Smith, who's a partner at Taylor Bracewell Solicitors, about why so many people put off this important task. So, Lauren, thanks a lot for joining us today. So I'm going to have a confession at the start here that I have had getting my will sorted on my personal to-do list for about three years now and still have not got around to doing it. And I think a lot of people are probably in the same boat as me. So for people like me and everyone else who keeps putting it off, why is it important that we get it sorted and get our wills written? Laura, you're not the only one, like you say, loads of people put it off. And it's one of the first things that clients often say to me that it's been on a to-do list for a long time and they've just not gotten around to doing anything. A will is so important though because it gives peace of mind knowing that what you want to happen will happen when anything should happen to you. Doesn't necessarily mean that there won't still be arguments and upset caused when anything does happen to you, but it's a very clear indication of what your wishes are, who's to deal with everything, and it makes sure that those wishes are followed and it gives someone the responsibility of making sure that that does happen. And if people die, often the money doesn't go to who they think it will go to, does it? So can you just explain maybe a few different circumstances of where the money goes to in in different life situations, I guess? Yeah, of course. I mean, if someone dies without making a will, then it's known as dying intestate. And that, as a result of that, what it means is there's a strict legal order not only as to who inherits your assets and at what age they're allowed to inherit, but also who's left with the responsibility of sorting everything out. So, for example, it's a common misunderstanding that when one spouse dies and the other one's still alive, that everything would automatically pass to that surviving spouse. And that's not necessarily the case. This would all depend on the value of the assets that are involved, whose name those assets were in, whether they were a sole asset or joint assets, and whether or not the deceased had children or grandchildren. And all of that can actually impact what happens. So it's really important to make sure that there's a will there to protect those circumstances, even if you are married and think everything's really straightforward. It might not be. Another example is where you've got cohabitees, and they often think that they've got a right to their partner's assets, they call themselves common law spouses. But unfortunately, from a point of view of wills, that has absolutely no legal standing. And a cohabitee wouldn't receive any inheritance unless there's a will that's been left. That's so interesting. And I think also now we have much more complicated family structures and, you know, second marriages or maybe second relationships and children from different areas. Um, that must also make it more important that people have kind of clearly stated what money they want to go where. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like you say, I see a lot more clients now who don't have the normal husband, wife, 2.4 children scenario. And there are children from previous relationships, marriages, assets that need taking into account that are slightly more complex. But it doesn't mean that you can't still protect your assets for your own children to 
safeguard against remarriage of a spouse or partner and them going on and taking your assets into a new relationship, new children. So it's really important, whatever circumstances you have, no matter how simple you think they are, you've put something in place to protect against the worst case scenario, really. I think one of the things that maybe puts people off is that it feels like it might take ages. Um, Is that true? How long does it actually take to write a will from start to finish? It doesn't take long at all. I mean, I always say to clients that if they've got time to watch an episode of Coronation Street or something like that, then they've got time to make a will. Literally, it's a really simple process and clients always comment to me that they can't believe they put it off so long. It's a relief to finally get it dealt with and tick it off the to-do list because they actually thought it would take weeks, months, and that's not the case. An initial appointment would usually take around 20 minutes to half an hour to get all the information that we would need. And we'd then draft something for you to approve. And then once you're happy with it, we'd get it all signed and witnessed. So literally it can be dealt with within two half hour appointments usually. And what about, so if someone is is convinced by this and thinks, okay, I'm going to finally tackle it. What kind of paperwork and information and stuff do they need to gather together? It's a really good idea to have an idea of what your assets might be worth. So you don't have to get everything formally valued or anything like that. But if you've got a property, have a look on websites and see what similar properties are going for sale for. So you've got an idea to give your solicitor a bit of advice about what assets we're actually trying to protect. That's really important so they can then advise you properly about any inheritance tax issues you might have or any claims against your estate, things like that. In addition, full names and addresses are really important. The number of times I see clients, they don't actually know if people have got middle names or how you spell certain names. So many names nowadays can be spelled in more than one way. So they're not sure whether it's and with or without an E, for example. So just checking things like that makes it really helpful to have that information at your initial appointment. And then what about some of the tricky decisions that people are going to have to make to include in their will? So, for example, um, people with children will need to decide who the legal guardian is going to be. Are there other kind of difficult decisions that people might need to think about before they start the process? Yeah, I mean, guardians is definitely one of the ones that people often struggle with. Um, who's going to look after your children if you were to die while they were still under 18. I mean, that's often tricky, not only from a point of view of who do you trust enough to raise the children, who'd raise them in the way that you want them to, but also there's sometimes a fear of upsetting who you don't name as a guardian. So, for example, if you're naming one sibling and you've got two others, well, why have you chosen that one and not the others? One thing I always say to clients is it's really important to review your will as time goes on because someone you name as a guardian now, for example, their circumstances might be very different in five or ten years' time. They might have three or four children of their own at that point, in which case adding yours into the mix might not be something you want to do. So, yeah, guardians is definitely one that people struggle with. Another one... um, it sounds awful, but can be the what if scenario. So you've often got people who leave everything to each other on the first death, a couple, and then they leave it all to their children if they were to both die. But they don't often consider what if something was to happen to all the family unit. So if they were in an accident, car accident, plane crash, something awful like that, 
it's best that your will does take into account that scenario and cover every eventuality. My theory is if you're doing the will, you may as well do it belt and braces and cover as much as you possibly can. That's a very good point. I hadn't thought about that, but it is a bit depressing. I think that's why people put off wills, isn't it? Because you have to think about these depressing scenarios, but it is obviously very important. Um, so if you're someone who has actually already done their will, so they're pretty smug, um, they did it ages ago, how often do you actually need to update it? I mean, you mentioned there about updating legal guardians of children every so often, but um, are there other things that you might need to do to update it? Is it something you should pencil in, you know, every five or 10 years or whatever? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I personally say to clients, when I finish a will for a client, I give them a copy of that signed will and we store the original for them in our strong room free of charge. But what I always say to clients is take your copy out of the cupboard every 18 months, two years and have a look at it. It doesn't mean they have to come back and see me. It just means they need to check it. And you'd be surprised how often clients check those things and realise that actually addresses have changed, names have changed, they don't speak to somebody anymore, they've named the wrong guardian or their children are now over 18 and they would want them to be the executors. There's lots of things that will change gradually over time that people don't realise. So when I say literally get it out of the cupboard, check it's as it should be, it might be that hopefully you can put it away for a few more years and not worry about it. But you've then got peace of mind knowing that it is still up to date and reflects your current wishes. If it doesn't, you can then do something about that. And where should you, I mean, you talked about keeping it in a cupboard there so you can um, check it as every so often, but where should you keep your will so that people will actually know where it is like how do after you died how do people know where to find it and how to access that information so from our point of view we keep all the originals for our clients we store them in our strong room so then that way they can't be accidentally damaged destroyed or even fraudulently damaged um we give our clients a signed copy of that will in an envelope that explains exactly where the original is stored and how anyone can get in touch with us. And then what we say to clients is tell people that you've made a will and where you keep your copy. Most people you find tend to have a box or a drawer with all their important documents in it, life insurances, bank statements, things like that. So we often say just to keep the will with that and then people have all the information on that copy to then contact us should anything happen. Thanks so much for explaining that. I feel like I am very motivated now to get my will finally sorted and hopefully you've helped lots of other people as well. Fantastic. That's what we like to hear. Laura talking to Lauren Smith. And, and it really is an, an important thing to do, Dan, just for, for peace of mind, if nothing else. I remember when um, it was after our second child was born, my husband and I both decided that, right, now is the time. But even then, it did take us a couple of years to actually get everything together in order to make a will. And it was such a simple thing to do when we actually got around to it. But so many people put it off. Um, when did you sort yours out? Oh, yeah, same situation. You know, second child, uh, very young and thought perhaps perhaps we need to sort this out. <laughs> yeah. it's uh, But, you know, it, 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 I think people, it's just the last thing people think about, isn't it? So, you know, particularly if you're young, um, you're just thinking, okay, I'll, I'm just concentrating on um, living my life. If you've got children, you're raising those kids, you don't think about all the sort of the so that, you know, what might happen down the line but yeah it's like as you say it's incredibly important to do so to to, yeah. to sort it out 
Yeah, you you don't want to think worst case scenarios, um, but you do want to think about your cash and and where it goes and who gets it and making it straightforward and you know making cash straightforward to use is something that you know we've all got used to using cash straightforward and I'm going to do a really ham handed segue here, Dan, to go from talking about making a will into talking about paying for stuff on your mobile phone. Um, Apple Pay, do you use it? No, I don't. I am I am not uh, sort of a big fan of um, Apple products. I think you, you either love them or you're just not bothered with them. And I think I fall into the latter category. Well, I probably fall into the former. And, and I certainly have become a, a bit of a devotee of paying for stuff on my phone. And in fact, I, I go out now with just my phone and I'm completely thrown if I can't use it to pay for anything. But also, you know, just the ability to to do everything so simply just with your fingerprint is is good when you've got a busy life. However, it can also cause problems. And I don't know, when I heard that Apple was moving into the buy now, pay later realm, that, that did make me, you know, feel a, a little uncomfortable. Well, I don't think it's too radical a departure for the business. It's already got like an, a multi-year instalment plan if you want to buy some of its big products. And it's actually offered a credit card since 2019. But the idea now that if you're in the US, you can spread the cost of buying uh, something with Apple Pay into sort of four payments over six weeks without paying interest or fees. It's def- definitely going to sort of appeal to lots of people. But, um, you know, equally sort of alarm bells ring anytime we see yet another company get into the buy now pay later space so you know you can see the appeal of it you know perhaps if if you want to um you want to buy something you're thinking i don't have enough cash until say two three weeks time when i get paid well rather than waiting you can now this is another form of credit really to you you can use now and um obviously if there's no interest or fees there that's sort of appealing if you want to do that but I just increasingly seeing people just too reliant on debt. Um, you see lots of uh, you know, retail companies are sort of uh, a, a bit desperate for people to 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 spend money with them, so they're sort of looking at this sort of as another option to try and make the sort of their goods and services appealing. Even to the extent of something like a music festival now, they're, they're desperate for people to buy tickets. You can now see you can pay in installments and stuff. So all all of this is sort of it just fuels this world where everyone's sort of living off money perhaps they don't have now and um and and the, the the worry here is that people who don't understand how it all works and you know this is not free money this you still need to pay it back at the end of the day um i worry that more people are getting into debt and we've had citizens advice say half of 18 to 34 year olds in um in a survey use credit cards or borrow from family to make the buy now pay later repayment so they're relying on one form of debt to cover another. I mean, that, that can't be good. And, and actually, in March, Citizens Advice found in another survey that one out of 12 people were using buy now, pay later just to cover essentials like food and toiletries. And, um, you know, I, I just worry that people are getting themselves into financial trouble. They don't understand how it all works. And really, the messages need to be much clearer about, you know, th- 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 this is this is not particularly a good thing if you don't understand how it works or if you're not very good at budgeting. Um, and, and I wouldn't be surprised to see much stringent rules about um, you know, this form of borrowing in sort of the coming months and years. And it's too easy to do as well. I know that um, earlier in the year, there was um, a study 
by the University of Puget Sound in in Washington, which sounds like a great place to be. Um, But they found that people using mobile payment platforms are more likely to overspend. So they had 34% higher odds of spending more than their yearly income than people who used other payment methods. Um, They think that it's very much like that sort of phenomenon that happened in the 1980s when credit card use significantly exploded you know it created that convenience and and created a situation where people were overspending and right now when money is so tight there is a a real danger that people can get themselves into a, a really difficult situation um you know, and there was a huge amount of spending going on over the Jubilee. It was great to see. And I did see that the British uh, Retail Consortium had put out figures saying that they'd had incredible footfall on on the Thursday of the four-day weekend. But, you know, people are really struggling to to cover costs. And and certainly one of the things that people are, are having to pay more for at the moment is filling up their tank of petrol. And I spotted this earlier. It's a warning from the RAC saying that this summer we could well see a situation where drivers are paying £2 a litre for petrol. I mean, I, it wasn't that long ago that I remember looking at those signs on the petrol, in fact, doing a news story about the fact that the price of a litre of petrol had risen above a pound. Now we're talking about two pound a litre. I mean, that takes the cost of filling up a 55 litre family car to a hundred pounds. It's just absolutely insane. In fact, um, just in the last few days, of course, because this is this is sort of driver season. Um, if you think about it in the United States, um, Memorial Day to, to Labor Day weekend, this is when people get out, they use their cars, they go to the beach, they see people, they go on holidays. So, of course, petrol usage goes up. So normally at this time, we do sort of take a look at petrol prices. But over the bank holiday weekend, we saw prices surging up. And in fact, RAC Fuel Watch saw that um Asda had hiked petrol prices nearly five pence in a single day. Wow. And the average price of a litre went up by two pence on Tuesday to 181 a litre. These are big numbers. No, absolutely. I, I think that prices are, you know, they are just going up just about everywhere. And actually, even just if you look at the, the housing market, um, you know, we've heard about you know, people sort of, everyone racing to buy sort of properties actually what what we've seen the latest figures from the halifax showed that house price growth actually slowed in may so you know that that's perhaps good for first-time buyers but it's still incredible that you know halifax is saying the cost of an average house has risen by 74 percent in just 10 years so you know home ownership is the dream lots of people not least because it's becoming more expensive to rent but actually more difficult to find somewhere to rent Yes. So uh, I, I was quite interested to to hear this figure, the number of homes for rents halved in the past three years. Now, this is because landlords are increasingly selling off their properties. Of course, you know, lots of people um, over the last sort of decade have looked at property as a really good investment and looked at the buy to let market as a really good way of, of having an income. But now the number of available properties has decreased. And in March 2019, there were around 
30 properties available to rent per estate agent. That's according to Property Mark, but it's gone down since almost half. So now just uh, just over 15, according to a survey of 443 agents. And this is because lots of landlords are selling these houses um, because you know th- there's been a huge increase in the amount of regulation that um, they have to the hoops that you know landlords have to jump through this is because of course the UK government is trying to improve the sector trying to make things better for people who rent and also for you know people who who rent out these homes as well but actually what's happening is it's creating a situation where lots of landlords are deciding that it's just too difficult it's too expensive and we had the pandemic as well perhaps you know people weren't able to to make as much money as they ordinarily would do and then decided that it was possibly a, a good time to sell so this is something which could have a a massive knock-on. If you're unable to get on the housing ladder and then you're in a situation where, you know, the the rent that you're paying in the place that you've got, you know, your tenancy agreement comes up for renewal, the price goes up. You've also got a situation where people looking to rent a place are either offering to pay six months in advance or offering above the rental price just to secure that place. So, it does create a situation which is pretty untenable long term. Absolutely. So that's all we have time for this week. If you've got any questions, uh, do drop us an email. The address is podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And next week, you can hear an interview I've done with Ashoka Investment Trust on investing in India. And I will be joined by Tom Selby, who's stepping in for Laura, who is out on the road next week. In the meantime, do leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. And thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.